Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome, everyone. I'm Amy Bird, and super excited as I'm here today with Todd Pruitt and Carl Truman. That's exciting enough. And we have a guest that is calling in all the way from the castle in Disneyland. He is Dr. Scott Swain, President and Professor of Systematic Theology at RTS Orlando, and we are super excited to talk to him today. Hey, Scott, how you doing? I'm doing well, but I do need to correct you, Amy. I'm calling from Disney World. Oh, exactly. I knew I said it wrong. I always get those mixed uh, yeah. up. Yeah. Well, we're well, recording hey. in Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're in Chuck E. Cheese and Disney World and Disneyland. It's like the same. Mm-hmm. And, and Amy, Amy lived in West Virginia for a long time, so yeah. that has to factor in I don't in know as about well. these refined castles <laughs> and all that. Mm-hmm. So today we want to talk to you about your book, Reformed Catholicity, that you co-wrote with Michael Allen. And maybe you could just kind of unpack this title for us, because it's a book that I recommend often. I I really love this book and the whole idea behind it. But I find that the title kind of confuses people sometimes. So what does it mean to be reformed? And then why are you calling it reformed Catholicity? Yeah, great question. So the book is trying to contribute in a small way to the renewal of theology and biblical interpretation by helping contemporary Protestants be more truly Protestant. And the basic thesis is that to be more truly Protestant, we have to be good Catholics in some sense. If you look at 16th and 17th century Protestant confessions, they weren't just about disputing things with Rome and providing clear definition to doctrines related to scripture and justification and so forth. But they are also very interested in affirming what they believed was the Catholic substance of the faith related to the doctrine of God and the Trinity, related to the person of Christ. And Luther explicitly says, we have no debate with Rome on these issues. And so we're trying to recover that sense of Protestantism, that that sense that you see in the 17th century a number of places, including, as we mentioned in the introduction to our book, William Perkins has a book called Reformed Catholic, where he contrasts being a Roman Catholic with being a Reformed Catholic. So we're Mm -hmm. trying to recover some of that sensibility for theology and biblical interpretation directly, and then indirectly, hopefully, also trying to influence contemporary Protestant churches as well. So you use the line that I've been stealing a lot lately and attributing to you, though, that the church is the school of Christ. I was wondering if you could unpack that some, especially in contrast to like the popular way many evangelicals view discipleship as like, all I need is a personal relationship with God and my Bible. And yet you're, yeah. you're calling the church the school of Christ. Yeah, so I think there's a kind of modern, uh, a bastardized form of sola scriptura that kind of infects a lot of modern evangelicalism, where we think that, you know, 
commitment to Scripture's supreme authority brings the entailment with it that I, the individual, am Scripture's supreme interpreter. Mm-hmm. But that just doesn't follow as an entailment from sola scriptura. In fact, if you look at the Bible, the Bible speaks of the church as the pillar and ground of the truth. And we see that Christ not only appointed apostles, but he appointed pastors and teachers and evangelists and so forth. And so the argument there is that the way that Christ has ordained for the Bible to exercise its authority in the church is through a divinely ordained community with its officers and various practices of preaching and sacraments and worship and so forth. And so we want to kind of put the church back into a Protestant theological method, if you will, not at the expense of the individual. The the Mm -hmm. right of private interpretation is, is something that's very much a Protestant distinctive, but the right of the individual doesn't come at the expense of the community, but really is actually matures and, and, and learns to exercise properly within the context of community, or at least that's what we would want to argue. How do you address the uh, issue of doctrinal development, Scott? I mean, it's, this has been a, a thorny issue for Protestants really since the Reformation, and perhaps most famously with John Henry Newman's work, a development uh, uh, doctrine, and the various responses that that provoked in the middle of the 19th century, and of course, which was, you know, Newman wrote it when he was uh, an Anglican minister, but it wasn't published until he'd actually swum the Tiber and become a Roman Catholic, and his argument in that book was, was not incidental to that move. How do you address the the issue of doctrinal development relative to this notion of Reformed Catholicity that you're setting forth? Yeah, that's a great question. One way of thinking about it is to kind of distinguish the external cognitive principle of theology, which is Scripture, from the internal cognitive principle of theology, which is spirit, renewed reason, and we would want to say within the context of the Church. When it comes to the external cognitive principle of theology, Scripture, there can be no further development, because the climax of redemption has come in the person of Christ, and therefore the climax of revelation has come in the person of Christ. And so short of Christ's return, we want to say with the old hymn, what more can he say than to you he has said? So uh, the fullness of God's will for his people and the sufficiency of God's will for his people is revealed in Scripture. But when it comes to the internal cognitive principle, the church is coming to understand the Bible, the church is learning what it means to obey the Bible, there is all kinds of room for growth, and I think there is a plenty of room within Protestantism, it's necessary within Protestantism to see in part what's going on in the history of the church is growth in understanding of God's Word and clarity, greater clarity being achieved. And indeed, I think that's part of what's going on in the Reformation with respect to issues like justification. There really is not a consensual view of justification before the Reformation. And after the Reformation, you've got a Protestant view that's, you know, encapsulated in Protestant confessions, and then Rome also consolidates its view at Trent. And so you have doctrinal development at the time of the Reformation, both on the Protestant side and the Catholic side. 
So I think there is a necessity of affirming development of doctrine as long as we're placing that with inside the church's understanding of Scripture, not as learning something beyond Scripture that is not contained in Scripture. Newman's, you know, metaphor of Scripture being kind of the seed and then the tradition being the, the flower that grows out of the seed, it's better perhaps than the kind of two-source view that you find at the Council of Trent, but it's still, it's still not sufficient because it doesn't honor the finality New Covenant revelation in Christ that we have in the apostolic writings. Scott, I'm I'm wondering, and you're you're already starting to hit on some of this in in what you've answered. But in thinking in terms of theological method, how would you describe a uniquely Protestant approach to a theological method? Yeah, um, oh boy, talk about a can of worms. <laughs> uniquely Protestant theological method. I mean, I think in some ways we'd have to say that there are aspects of a Protestant theological method that should not be uniquely Protestant. Hmm. You know, Augustine, when he talks about the relationship between faith and reason, and his view kind of summarized faith-seeking understanding, that should be the part of any, I think, Protestant theological method. When Thomas Aquinas talks about the relationship between philosophy and theology, and he argues that philosophy is not sufficient to know what human beings know if they're going to arrive at their supreme happiness in the knowledge of God, and if they're to know the way that leads to that supreme happiness through the gospel. He says, well, you need something other than philosophy. You need theology. So while philosophy can tell you some things, theology tells you things philosophy couldn't. And he says, we also need theology because what we could know through philosophy, only few could know it, and because of sin, with many distortions. Well, that is a good way of thinking about the relationship between faith and reason, and that can play a role in Protestant theology. Where Protestant theological method starts probably making some distinctions from maybe a Roman Catholic view comes to do with, of course, things like the sufficiency of Scripture, which I just said. The finality of new covenant revelation in Christ as contained in the apostolic writings, the sufficiency of that revelation. When it comes to things that are treated as necessary for faith to believe in order to be saved, we we want to say that it's Scripture alone that can determine those things. And so, it creates a different understanding of Scripture and tradition. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, beyond that, we can talk about, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, kind of Cognitive principles of theology, external cognitive principle of scripture, internal cognitive principle, spirit renewed, mind, and so forth. Ontological principle of theology, the doctrine of the Trinity. But even then, we're, we're starting to talk about things that aren't necessarily distinctly Protestant, Protestant. because, yeah, there are, you know, anticipations of the, this kind of language in medieval theology, right. too. Right. And so let me ask you a loaded question. Um, yeah. <laughs> what, um, why? We'll put it this way. Why should Protestants still be drawing from and being helped by Aquinas? Um, why? Yeah, I mean, I think Aquinas is helpful in a number of ways. I w- somewhere, somewhere along the way, someone said Thomas is really a Protestant. Well, of <laughs> course, he's not a Protestant. Yeah. Thomas's view of justification is not a Protestant view of justification. Right. Thomas... 
Thomas' view of the Lord's Supper and Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper is not a Protestant mm-hmm. view. It's the Fourth Lateran Council's view. Thomas is not a Protestant, but Thomas should be of interest to Protestants for a number of reasons. One reason, he, he just, in many ways, summarizes broader patristic teaching on things like doctrine of God, right. doctrine of providence, and there's a lot of debate about this, but even things about how do you relate uh, faith and reason, how do you think about general and special revelation. Thomas, in some ways, while he is unique and does some very distinctively Thomistic things, if I can say that, mm-hmm. he's also in some ways just a generic representative of, of the great tradition. And so, especially in areas like the doctrine of divine attributes, doctrine of the Trinity, studying Thomas is a way, in a doorway in, into the broader tradition. I think this is also true of, of Thomas as a biblical commentator. Thomas was commissioned by the Pope to produce these, they're not a commentary like a contemporary commentary, but these commentaries on the Gospels where he went through and collated and kind of gathered together various patristic quotations on the Gospels. And then he also wrote commentaries. He has a commentary on the Gospel of John that's been recently translated that's just excellent. Thomas is helpful here for the same reason as he is kind of mentioning doctrine of God, doctrine of the Trinity. He, and others do this as well, so Thomas is not the only person, but Thomas brings together a broad kind of consensual Christian tradition that can be a helpful resource for Protestants. So let me just give one example when it comes to, to kind of Thomas's work on the Gospels. If you're working on a sermon, preaching out of at John chapter 5, Jesus has been accused of blasphemy, and he begins kind of explaining himself, describing his relationship to the Father. You know, let's say you're working with some term, some term in the Greek text, and you want to figure out what it means. Well, most people know that you need to understand the semantic range of that Greek term, so that all the possibilities for what it could mean, yeah. and then based on the context, you want to decide how is John using it in this text, mm-hmm. and that's just kind of sound exegesis. Well, what Thomas helps us do with a text like John 5 is not just think about kind of lexical issues, and he's dealing with a Latin text, and so in some ways it's not that helpful. But what he does is John 5 talks about some really complicated Trinitarian issues, the relationship between the Father and the Son. The Father has life in himself. He's granted the Son to have life in himself. What Thomas does is just like when you think of the semantic range of the word, you want to look at the various kind of options and then kind of come down on what the appropriate use is in this text, Thomas gives us a number of different ways that faithful pastors and theologians have read John chapter 5. So he'll talk about how Augustine reads this passage, how Chris Austin reads this passage, how various others read this passage. And, and essentially what he's giving us is a range of kind of theological categories drawn from the whole counsel of God, and then he, he'll argue, I think this is the best way, this is the best category for making sense of John 5. Now again, yeah. you don't even have to go at Thomas, mm-hmm. but it's really helpful mm-hmm. to have someone who's brought all of these categories yeah. together mm-hmm. and helps us. And I would say that it, while as important as kind of lexical work is, that theological interpretive moment 
is even more essential to getting at what John is trying to communicate. Because what's his main focus there? He's trying to communicate something about the person of Christ. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting what you say there, Scott. That brings together the the systematic project that you and Michael are engaged on with the the historiographical problem, certainly Mm -hmm. historiographical sort of revisionism that certainly I was as a part of five, ten years ago. I haven't done so much work in it recently, but that associated with the the bunch of academics who gathered around the work of Richard Muller, thinkers, demonstrated two things. One, that there is a strong interest in exegesis in the Middle Ages, and the Reformation is is one flowering of that tradition in the in the 16th century. And the other side of it is, is that one cannot understand the underlying theology and metaphysics of the confessions of faith that Protestants produce in the 16th, 17th century without giving high marks to Thomas. Chapter 2 of the Westminster Confession you know, there is uh, but only one living and true God who is infinite in being, perfection, the most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. Clearly yeah. predicated on understanding of divine simplicity of the kind that is presented in Thomas. So, you know, if you reject Thomas on divine simplicity, you really have to reject chapter two of the Westminster Confession or fundamentally revise it in some way that makes it mean something that it really didn't mean at the time. Absolutely. And and that was the point I was making earlier. To be truly Protestant, you have to, in some sense, be Catholic. Because in a sense, if you can't embrace certain commitments of of Catholic Christian metaphysics, then you can't be a confessional Protestant. You can be a kind of revisionist Protestant, and this is what the 19th century was all about, trying to kind of purge out the Catholicizing influences, and, and the result was, you know, we're familiar with Schleiermacher and, and, and kind of liberal Protestantism, but, but that's also infected a kind of conservative Protestantism. I mean, the, the fascinating thing, Carl, you mentioned kind of medieval metaphysics. It's really common to see someone like Zwingli appealing to kind of medieval metaphysical categories to use against Rome. You know, in a sense, sometimes the Protestants are saying, we're more Catholic than you are. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You have a bad understanding of the creator-creature relationship, and it goes against what the whole church has taught about the yeah. creator-creature relationship. I mean, this is what Zingley's saying about the sacraments. Mm-hmm. You're confusing, you know, what God can do with what a creature can do. Yeah. And I think that touches another thing. I mean, it's this, uh, the modern evangelical mind is so hypnotized might be too strong a word but certainly enamored of the idea of the battle for the bible Mm -hmm. that we miss the fact that historically it's the battle for the doctrine of god has been just as if not historically more significant and really the reformation was was about a battle for the doctrine of god on some levels more than it was a battle over the doctrine of scripture Mm -hmm. i think that's that's a sobering fact that a lot of people miss today well that's one reason why i think this book is so good for lay people to read and also your book Trinity Revelation and Reading Scott because I think a lot of Protestants often use the word tradition in a more negative light especially lay people um, but what role does being socialized in a specific culture play in our theology and then in our Bible interpretation you know for our quiet times and our devotions at home yeah I think it plays a huge role Augustine and his book on Christian teaching which is a it's a book that's kind of part how to read the Bible. It's also a book that's part how to communicate 
the Bible. So mm-hmm. it's what we call hermeneutics and homiletics combined. He starts off addressing with a potential objector who says, look, if we have the Holy Spirit, why do we need a community to teach us? And Augustine's response is, well, you didn't learn the ABCs by yourself. You didn't learn to read by yourself. And if that's true in kind of a general way, it's also true when it comes to knowing God's ways. And so, you think of Paul when he is giving his swan song to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. He reminds Timothy not only of what he's learned from the apostle, but what Timothy has learned from his mother and grandmother. Paul considers the socialization that happened as a child being catechized, being taught the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He considers that essential to Timothy's preparation for gospel ministry. And so, communal formation is, is vital. It, it's God's design plan. It's, it's in Deuteronomy 6, right? Mm-hmm. Teaching children on the way and, and so forth. And again, it's the preeminent role of the church in making disciples is providing a community, the Word of God taught, but where you have examples lived, where you have faithful summaries of, of biblical teaching given in sermons and hymns, in more formal statements like creeds and confessions and so forth as well. So, the, the socialization aspect of discipleship is, is not a kind of add-on. It's mm-hmm. actually essential to Christian formation. Right. You talk about kind of reading as private versus reading as a communal enterprise. Mm -hmm. And I really like that because, I mean, you know, that attitude is so pervasive that it's, you know, me and God and and the Holy Spirit is is revealing interpretively to us while we're reading, maybe. Whereas they'll look at maybe the creeds and the confessions as, you know, these documents put together by men. Mm -hmm. But you do such a good job of, of showing how they're actually a fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in the church through history and a gift to the church. Yeah. You know, in in so many other areas of life, we wouldn't dream of kind of leaning on our own individual expertise. We seek out a community of those who know better. Mm, You know, you you want to learn some profession, you go to a school where where there are people who are trained, or you want to learn a sport, you, you find a coach, you find a team. But so many times in you know, kind of modern Christianity, we, again, we assume that me by myself is the place to start. And I think, I think what's probably beneath this, even deeper than a failure to kind of relate church and individual properly, is probably a mistake about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And here's what I mean. I think that kind of modern Christians have an understanding of the Holy Spirit that you know the Holy Spirit's at work, when something extraordinary versus ordinary happens, and when something happens immediately, like directly upon you, without any kind of external mediation. Mm -hmm. Well, the thing about it is, that's not a Protestant view of the Holy Spirit, right? right? That's the view of the Holy Spirit that the Reformers criticized Mm -hmm. as enthusiasm. (laughs) We believe this, the Spirit (laughs) who made the world providentially governs the world, and His providence extends to the very ordinary things like building the church through pastors and teachers, Mm -hmm. and 
through the production of things yes, like creeds and confessions, and that he uses these as instruments in the individual's formation. And so far from kind of, you know, being kind of fleshly versus spiritual or something, these communal means are are works of the Spirit, instruments that he uses to shape his people, to form his people, to build them up in Christ. Yeah, that's good. I have one more really quick question to ask you before we wrap is this, up. Is this you're asking if Scott reads Anne Voskamp? No, this is way more important. <laughs> <laughs> She's my, a huge fan, Amy. Anyway. She always asks us. question <laughs> is, Scott, when are you going to repent of your slander of crunchy peanut butter? Oh. oh, I saw something like that on social media. I was really disappointed. Horrible, horrible this things. This has been he says. a long-standing dispute that Amy and I have had, and and as much as I, as much as I really want to put my trust in Amy's judgment, <laughs> this is this has been the thing that has always kind Separated of kept us. me at arm's length yeah. from yeah. really trusting and endorsing her as a reliable <laughs> teacher is her commitment to crunchy peanut mm. butter. Yeah. Yes, passion for. I, yeah. I'm, there, there are no words, Amy. There are no <laughs> words. <laughs> Only somebody who lives at that distance could possibly think that that's the worst thing about her. <laughs> there are many, <laughs> other, so many other, many, things, many other issues. I have to Scott, concede that, that that's a good point. Talk about this, uh, <laughs> but it's been great uh, having uh, Scott Swain from Orlando on the program today. And just to summarize, I think uh, the big takeaway from the book Reformed Catholicity is on one level to realize that uh, the faith is not reinvented every Sunday. And that's actually a tremendously liberating thing. We stand in a tradition of thought and life that goes right the way back to the apostolic era. And it would be curmudgeonly and ungrateful of us not to draw very positively Mm -hmm. on that tradition. A tradition that, incidentally, as should have become clear in this podcast, goes back way before 1517 uh, and was not suspended with the death of Augustine, but actually span, went through the, the Middle Ages where mm-hmm. tremendously important insights on things like the doctrine of God were, were provided uh, to the church and, as Scott pointed out, uh, plenty of good exegesis mm-hmm. as well. Oh, and Carl, and I just also want to point out, this is not a big, thick, scary book. No, it's no, very easily it, readable. It's very readable. It is not, a you know, these guys will produce other thick works, mm-hmm. but this yeah. one is accessible and we really do recommend it for the for the decently read layperson to be very chapters helped by on it. Thomas Aquinas or anything. Like that, right, 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 yeah. <laughs> there are a number of Michael Allen and Scott Swain books out there. I like to think of them as the Batman and Robin of <laughs> which ones the which? Reformed Renaissance. So uh, so thanks very much for joining us today, Scott. Uh, Thank please, you for having me. Please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, where you can enter for an opportunity to win a copy of Reformed Catholicity. And also you have an opportunity to make a donation as we are a listener supported podcast so until next time we wish you well when you wish upon a star makes no difference who you are anything your heart desires will come to you if your heart is in your dream No request is too extreme. 
Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... So guys, small groups, good things, bad things, indifferent things. Very good things. Amy, what do you think? Uh, Yeah, I love small groups. Mm -hmm. I think that everybody should be in one. And and I think if a pastor of a church isn't, there's a problem. I agree. Okay. That's another detective (laughs) story. Exactly. exactly. Well, I, I, I love the use of small groups. Do you connect the content to the Sunday teaching? And at Cornerstone, the small groups tend to use the sermon as the basis for discussion at small group. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. I'm here with my two hey, two Scott. sidekicks who are here to make me look great. <laughs> uh, Amy Bird and Todd Pruitt. Hey, Scott. It's Todd. Hey there. I know that uh, it is a thrill for you to get to talk to me again. <laughs> <laughs> Always. <laughs> <laughs> we like to think of Amy Bird these days as the unthinking man's Ann Voskamp. <laughs> <laughs> He's really laughing hard. Oh, that is the best thing I've heard in ages. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he is. <laughs>